John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 736.AC0219, certificate number 34112, The Lost Spitfires of Burma. So how long has it been since we did an episode on World War II aircraft? I think the usual gap on this show is about a week. A week, week yeah. and a half. I think it's been a week and a half, at least. So I was, I was feeling... Uh, yeah, you could you could sense a, a disturbance in the force. Yeah, dearth of of World <laughs> War II aircraft shows. You were jonesing. I uh, this is maybe my favorite title of any omnibus. The Lost Spitfires of Burma. Yes, sounds like a you know it's a one of those uh, it's a young Indiana Jones Chronicles episode. <laughs> well, you know um, Burma uh, slash Myanmar is in the news again because there was just recently a, a military coup d'état. Uh, Myanmar has been since its, um, since its, uh, I guess, what would you call the end of colonialism? Uh, when when uh, when Burma left the British sphere of influence, uh, which would have been in what 1949, uh, it's been kind of controlled by various military junta uh, and has been kind of a a. a a bad example of a very repressive um, sort of military-run country. is And is there, let me just ask you this, is there something I should be signaling by saying either Myanmar or Burma? Well, it is, since 1989, it's been called Myanmar. Uh, Burma is not really like a, a Burmese term for it. It was part of the British colonial empire starting in the 1880s. And um, even in World War II, actually, at the start of World War II, the Burmese initially welcomed Japanese occupation because they wanted to throw off the yoke of the British colonial empire <laughs> and then realized, oh, the Japanese colonial empire is no better and, in fact, worse. In some ways, problematic. I'm, yes. I'm just going to say that about Japanese <laughs> expansionism in the Pacific at the time. But, you know, as part of the end of colonialism, there were a lot of countries renamed themselves and—, and um, and, you know, like Rhodesia probably didn't, uh, didn't, that, that was an awkward fit. 
uh, to, to be named after Rhodes. I remember there was some issue with the um, with the Khmer Rouge, right? Like they they thought we should be saying Kampuchea. Yeah, Kampuchea. Well, is that right? So yeah, that Laos became. Wait a minute. Now Kampuchea was no Cambodia. Kampuchea is Cambodia, and I think it's even the same etymological thing. It's just a different alphabet or right something. Yeah, Kampuchea, I guess that, but that was again later in that was in the 1970s. Yes. And this happened but, but, gradually. But Myanmar's later as well, right? 1989. Okay. So Myanmar uh took quite a while to kind of try to uh what re- rehabilitate at least the name of the country. But it was a case where the military dictatorship was like, "Hey, call us Myanmar now." And so at the time there was some messaging, you know, are you a country that's going to say Myanmar? Are you going to, or are you going to dead name them by saying Burma, basically? Yeah, and, and show your support for the previous regime, right? Uh, it's well, and you know, I, when did Sri Lanka change its, or when did when Ceylon, Ceylon change to Sri Lanka? Sort of in the same fifties or sixties. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to tell because a lot of it is just old people saying the old name, right? And you know, out of, out of habit, I'll just—I don't know if I'm signaling anything by saying Ivory Coast instead of Cote d'Ivoire. Like, it's not clear to me if one is. Better or worse. I think nowadays, even in the U.S., it's pretty energy. Oh, I'm looking at Biden's statement about the about the response to the coup, and he said Burma. Is that right? Yes. Because I mean, although you know, Obama Obama was careful to say um, Myanmar to, to uh, intersperse the boat, the two. Yeah, Burma alternate. has such a like a tremendous sort of Orientalist connotation. We think of Burma in the context. You're reminded of, of tea plantations yeah. and the bridge on the River Kwai, and right. It's such a, um, you know, it's such a like pre-partition India it's all universe. The, it's all the Kipling stuff, right? Road to Mandalay, and so, and as you say, like Myanmar, the the renaming is associated with this super repressive and r- sort of racist uh, military dictatorship. The thing about this country is that. It's really centrally located. It borders Bangladesh. You're like the realtor of Burma. Yeah, listen. Listen. You need to get in on the ground floor. Five minutes from everything. uh, It borders Bangladesh, India, China, Laos, and Thailand. So, you know, the the borders are, and, you know, those are, that used to be somewhat porous. Um, And it's a, culturally, like, it has seven different ethnicities, um, some somewhere in the mid eighty percentage of the people are Buddhist, but there but six percent of them are Christian. Five percent of them are Muslim, and it's not a utopia, right? There's an ongoing genocide. Well, there's a genocide of the Muslim uh, population that's kind of been ongoing. But you know, for quite a while in the you know the mid two thousands, um, there there was a restoration of the presidency. There had there was a kind of peaceful revolution and a um, what was hopefully or aspirationally a democratic society. This was when Aung San Suu Kyi's power uh, party came to power, right? And you know, and all of a sudden, there's going to be reforms. Yeah, and the you know what had what had formerly been a group of people that were in, um, you know, like internal exile, suddenly were now part of the government. But of course the. They also were very problematic, and the genocide sort of happened under their watch. The military, just in you know within um, days of when we're recording this show, just reestablished control, and it's unclear what they're gonna, what that's gonna mean. 
Uh, we're, we're leaving a muddied record for the future if they're very curious about about uh, early 21st century Burma. Yeah, future futurelings will know more check, than we do now. Check your globe. We don't even know what it's going to be called. But during the war, as you said, you know, bridge on the River Kwai, um, Burma was, because of its uh, direct border with China, you know, the Burma Road was a, a, a main way that we were, and by we, I mean the allies, sort of supporting the... You're taking a lot of credit there. Well, <laughs> you know, I and the Flying Tigers... You did your part. You had a victory garden. <laughs> uh, you know, we were supporting the fifth column of Chiang Kai-shek and Mao yes. uh, in, the, you know, in Western China, sort of really fighting the Japanese and depleting their resources by by this overland route of supplying a lot of munitions and support to to the rebels, what would have been, very, you know, a, an awkward coalition of rebels. And um, because of the sort of nature of what was happening then, because there were also, I mean, Gandhi was, was running a fifth column uh, sort of passive for, for the Japanese. Well, not for the Japanese. This but, is new information about Gandhi. You know, the, 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 the colonial enterprise was also collapsing yes. at the same time that it was waging a war of freedom against this other colonial enterprise. You can see enterprise. why Churchill was just, why he famously said, well, what a lousy time to have World War II. <laughs> Remember when he, he gave that famous radio yeah. speech? Oh, worry time. I cannot think of a worse year for there to be World War II. Mm. But um, I think also because of the sort of uh, the environmental nature of these places where the jungle encroaches as soon as you stop beating it back, um, a lot of this over of these overland routes were – uh, were you know sort of pioneering routes that had been nothing but trail or not even trail, and all of a sudden you know a military industrial effort to build railways and on both sides of the conflict you know the, trying to put infrastructure into a place that there wasn't other than the war there wasn't really a need for a road between these places no one would use it. So is the road still there? Oh, I think a lot of those. Well, the Burma Road was more of a metaphor. Uh, right. It's I mean, like the Silk Road. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the Ho Chi Minh Trail was an actual trail. And uh, we had some friends move to Singapore to take a job, a tech job. And they like took their kids and like walked the Ho Chi Minh Trail with like their, like just kind of as a family outing. What? Really? <laughs> yeah. I guess um, part of Vietnam opening to tourism is, you know, the Ho Chi Minh Trail is uh, is like the App- Appalachians. Well, and the Burma Road was a road. I don't mean to, I don't mean to mischaracterize it. I mean, it was a route. Yeah. Um, but you know, the Ho Chi Minh trail was also kind of a metaphor in the sense that we sent B 52s out there on an hourly basis to try and destroy it. And the, and they would blow up the Ho Chi Minh trail and then they would just move it a hundred yards to the left or right. But it was a network, you know, we yes. network of trails. Uh, but the end of the war and the end of colonial control over Burma, um, you know, it all happened pretty fast, right? The war is over. There are a bunch of guys in khaki shorts standing around trying to figure out, like, uh, where to hang their pith helmet. And within a few years, 
it's like you're out. Is it the same time frame? Like India was partitioned just like three years after the war ended. Is, yeah, it's same exact, yeah. same exact era, right? And um, and that was a, that was a sweeping kind of like, well, you know, guess what? This whole part of the world used to be colored red, and the four color map problem has now it's a, lot, a lot more complicated. Yeah, has now precipitated like nine new countries. The fall of the British Empire really led to a lot of good topological research. But because then Burma went behind a kind of wall of dictatorship, it also was uh, maybe more mysterious. And because, you know, Burma is like the largest country of Southeast Asia, but Thailand became a, um, you know, kind of a paradise for That's Western. forward thinking magnet for the West. Yeah. A lot of tourism. But, but Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam were places where that uh where the colonial enterprise then became the global conflict between the the Soviets and the United States war torn full of tragedy and here is Burma sort of close to the world uh it became again the kind of the orientalism that the west sort of directs at southeast asia because there's so much romantic uh both the exoticism, but also there's the remnant of the colonial world. There's, you know, Ho Chi Minh City is full of French architecture. There's ruins in the jungle, but you can get really good baguette. You can get good baguette, right. And people speak European languages still. Um, there's Christianity there. So Western people, you know, there's an appeal. There's a, a there's a Hong Kong kind of appeal because it seems more approachable than, um, than you know, Western China would be. Yeah. And as a result, it's always been kind of a figure of fascination. Well, fast forward to the period immediately after the the restoration of sort of quasi democracy in 2011. Uh, an Englishman, farmer, and um, kind of, it's, it's sort of the type of guy that would have um, a model train set or, you know, would be painting Ronan. Uh, a man by the name of David Condal had many years prior been, you know, he was in a pub somewhere and overheard a couple of guys, unnamed guys in the, from the past. Uh, 25 years prior to this this period of you know 2011 he'd overheard a conversation where some ex british colonial era servicemen were talking about a um a shipment of spitfires the iconic fighter plane of the war RAF a shipment of spitfires that had been sent shipped to Burma at uh, in that period toward the end of the war, and they were Spitfires that were going to be utilized in fighting that rear guard action uh, against Japanese. And because of the nature of shipping, by the time the Spitfires arrived in Burma, the war was over. And you can picture the scene, right? This fantastic shipment of what would have been, you know, the very last. Spitfires, you know, the, the most advanced Spitfire of the war, the Mark 14 Spitfires. Oh, there were different Spitfires. I guess I didn't. 
guess that makes sense. Yeah. At the end of the war, there were much better Spitfires. And we've talked about like how much World War II advanced technology going into the war in 1939. um, We were in a completely different world technologically than we were in 1945 at the end of the war. You know, in, in 39, airplanes were still made of linen. And in 19... uh, 49, we were, we discovered corduroy. Yeah. Well, we were, too, we were, <laughs> we were already looking at, at outer space. Um, and th- there was nowhere more true than in the, uh, in aircraft technology. Um, the, the primary fighter for the British at the beginning of the war was the Hawker hurricane, which was, you know, it began life as a biplane, and was this a World War One era plane? No, no, no. In 1939, it was the absolute, you know, state like of the art, peak state of the art. <laughs> but it was made out of, uh, you know, the the whole tail end of the fuselage was made out of wood and and like um, linen doped with lacquer. And actually, that helped the hurricane at the beginning of the war because the the new German all steel airplanes, which were fitted with these, you know, these really like fast firing 30 millimeter cannons, uh, they would, sh- you know, they'd shoot at Hawker hurricanes and the cannons had e- explosive shells, but the, the, basically the paper fuselage of these airplanes, the shells would just pass straight through them and Hawker hurricanes would come back to the airfields and they'd be full of holes and the pilots wouldn't have even noticed. They wouldn't have even known that they'd been blown up. So like a job in the, in the RAF would be to be like one of those, um, Sign, sign painter guys, you yeah. know, the guys with the paper mache things. Yeah, right. If they could repair the planes and get them back flying just by, just by slapping a coat of varnish on a new piece of fabric. Just like posters for USO shows. And the Spitfire, which came along, you know, which was the uh, successor, well, sort of successor of the Hurricane. It was a brand new all steel fighter plane. And if you look at the two airplanes next to each other, uh, there's a reason that the Spitfire is now regarded as the hero of the battle of britain the you know absolutely the iconic airplane of the of the the raf of the war it's a beautiful airplane and the hawker hurricane is kind of a stubby airplane if you if you picture the hurricane with a extra wing on top as a biplane (laughs) it's almost better looking um but it does it just sort of looks like um they could have put on a decorative one like the extra smokestack on the, the Titanic. Well, the thing is that second wing really slows an airplane down. You know, by making it a monoplane, they they increase the speed and maneuverability. So it, the biplane was was a was a dead deal. But it kind of looks like a dreidel with wings. You know, it's not. <laughs> and the and the Spitfire, it's just like an Art Deco work of art. It's it's so much more elegant and beautiful. And by the Battle of Britain, the Spitfire was in production. It was. There, it was a lot faster. It was the one that was, uh, that was like the exotic kind of thing that could shoot down a BF 109. It was a hot rod, but the Hawker Hurricane did the lion's share of the heavy lifting. I mean, there were twice as many of them in the Battle of Britain than the Spitfire. So, the Spitfire is, um, even now iconic and somewhat fetishized the worshipped airplane uh, uh there aren't that many of them flying is the tech good or is it like the british cars of of 
the mid 20th century where they're just beautiful, awful beasts. No, the tech is great. They're, I mean, if you see one in flight, they're still extraordinary. Um, I was, I, I was walking across England one time <laughs> and, uh, I was in that area of, uh, of the Eastern UK kind of in the, the area sort of getting close to Harwich and the, and the channel and out in the middle of nowhere, I heard this sound and I looked up and two Spitfires flew right over me in formation, you know, right off the ground. And I don't know what they were doing. I, I don't know if I dreamed it. It feels like almost a thing that I dreamed. And you were probably time traveling. It was so fantastic. The, the sound, the, the experience of just like, wow, that would, even now, if they were strafing me, I would be so in, happy. I would be in awe. I, I wished they had fired their guns at me just to like, just to have had that additional experience. So no, they're, they're incredible. And, you know, one in flying condition now is worth millions of dollars. Oh, really? Um, they're not, there are Spitfires in museums, but the number that are flying and I, how many of, how many of the ones that actually can fly are owned by the estate of Paul Allen. It's not an insignificant number, but so, um, this, this David Cundall had overheard this conversation when he was probably in his forties between these two, like ex, uh, world war two servicemen. I'm so jealous. What a, what a, what an amazing clandestine cloak and dagger kind of conversation to hear. I never overhear anything good. Is that right? Even on the internet when people are always posting funny things they overheard on the subway, I've never overheard anything. Am I just self-absorbed? Maybe, yeah. Well, you got to stop listening to NPR on your headphones and start uh, absorbing the world. Maybe my hearing is not good. Maybe people see you and then all of a sudden they like, shh, shh, shh. They just start saying boring yeah, stuff. Yeah, just, just stop it. Do you let's overhear good it. stuff? Oh, yeah. Because you listen. You listen and you watch. I mean, I'm, riding, seen, riding the subways in New York City, I just feel like you, you can't yeah. help but hear like crazy. I guess crazy I like watching family stuff. dynamics in airports, mm-hmm. but nobody's ever um, told me about a lost, <laughs> a lost emerald mine. A or, lost emerald mine? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. You know, I talk to people at gas stations. If you're sitting and filling up your car and somebody's next to you filling up their car, it always feels weird. It's like one of those social things where you're both pretending that you're not standing five feet from each other because there's a there's a machine in between you. And I'm generally, if if the person seems interesting, I lean around the thing and go, "Hey, how's it going there? Oh, it's is that the one with the the big motor? Or whatever. Who's ready to be a grandpa? <laughs> and and I get into crazy conversations with people. I met a guy one time that was like, "Well, I'm a gold panner, but in the winter I live in my truck down here and." Uh, next to the baseball stadium <laughs> and in the summer I'm up in a secret gold mine panning for gold. Uh, overhearing this conversation, the, the gist of it was that a ship with 140 Spitfires crated in these tight little wooden crates. Are where they the, assembled? Yeah. Where, the, but the wings had been folded in, you know, the wings had been taken off and, and put on the sides. Yeah, I've seen a transformer. Yeah. And these, you know, these crates were 11 foot, uh, high by 40 foot long. So you can kind of picture it's like a shipping container and each one had a spitfire. 
they arrived at, at the Rangoon docks and had been, you know, were disembarked. And then the war is over and there's a problem. We have all these perfect Spitfires and nobody needs them anymore. I mean, that's a pretty good problem to have, honestly. Of all my problems, I've never had a problem that good. Where you had 140 Spitfires? 140 spare Spitfires. But at the time, at the end of the war, there are thousands upon thousands of Spitfires and Mustangs and, you know, like airplanes and tanks and ships. They're just sinking stuff and making coral reefs out of it. and Nobody needs any of it anymore. And I think there was a little bit of the war to end all wars problem. Uh, But also, it was the dawn of the jet age. And so even at the end of the war, these airplanes were facing these Nazi jets. Clearly obsolete. And like, oh dear, this was the absolute hottest airplane six months ago. And now uh, the ME-262 has made it all seem crazy. And by the Korean War, only five years later, it was a jet war. No Spitfires in Korea. Uh, Well, Spitfires, I think, did continue to be, you know, in the air forces of developing nations for a long time. They were still useful aircraft if you were running a Peruvian junta. But not NATO so much. Right. Um, And I think even more so the difficulty in that moment was, again, like so much in war, logistical. Like, what are we going to do? Put these back on the ship and send them somewhere else? Like, we have thousands of of troops to transport home. We have all this stuff to do. You it's know? like when Amazon sends you the wrong thing and you're like, no, I want the right thing. And then they say, you know what? Just keep the wrong thing. Yeah, just it, throw the wrong thing away. It's just better to not have to send it. It would cost us more to take it back. Yes. And so according to this overheard conversation, these 140 Spitfires were buried in Burma. Um, giant... Pits, Literally dug into the ground. Giant pits were uh, were dug right next to the uh, the air bases, and under the direction of Lewis Mountbatten, Whoa. who was the you know commander of the Eastern Theater, these Spitfires. It was like, wow, well, we don't know what to do with them, and just so just bury them, uh, which is a lot more progressive than. Uh, dumping them in the ocean, as you say, like uh, all those aircraft carriers that were like, oh, I just, just put them off the back. I don't think it's polite to say dumping in the ocean when you're talking about um, Lord Mountbatten, given... Ooh, ouch, too soon? Given what happened to, or at least, I don't know, I, I, I know what happened to Charles Dance on the crown. I assume that's what actually happened. Yeah, no, that's what happened. Fa- I, fatal, IRA fatal, blew him up. Fatal lobster fishing incident. I thought it was the lobsters, but it turns out it was the IRA. Well, the lobsters probably were the ones that ended up dispatching... <laughs> Part of it. The lobsters were pretty happy. Yeah. They were, you know, I'm not saying the lobsters are, uh, are all singing a nation once again as he sinks to the bottom. You don't think they were collaborators with the IRA? <laughs> Maybe. The IRA converted the lobsters first. Green lobsters. Uh, so here. <laughs> I can't imagine why that threw you off, me talking about. <laughs> I'm just like. Me suddenly talking blah, about, blah, blah. about lobster fishing on the crown. Well, because I'm, I'm just picturing lobsters now as a component of this story and I. I can't, I'm not sure I can find my way back. <laughs> John, this is a show about the future. I And yet, me. I bet we're speaking to a lot of people who are going to the bathroom exactly the way their grandparents did. I mean, if you think about it, people are going to the bathroom the way that their one million ago grandfathers did, but... That's true. You know what medieval peasants and cavemen did not have? What? The bidet toilet. No, that's the thing. That's the first real innovation. I mean, after... 
leaves. Um, what else? What else is new? The seat, I guess. Leaves were toilet 1.0. Right. And then there was a, there was a place you could actually sit. And after that's, that. That's toilet 2.0. Yeah. What is there? There's the brand new Hello Tushy 3.0 modern bidet attachment. You put it on top of your toilet at home and it cleans you with a spray, a precise stream of fresh water. Mm. And then it cleans itself before and after it's used with the smart spray automatic self-cleaning nozzle. So do I have to get a plumber or an electrician to hook this up for me? No electricity, no additional plumbing, and it'll pay for itself and all the toilet paper you don't use, or it'll free up toilet paper to use for other things. And how do you keep this whole operation clean? Again, the Schmutz Shield offers easy cleaning. The Schmutz Shield, by the way, has a TM after it here, so you know it's Mm -hmm. good. Schmutz, I would say Schmutz Shield. The knobs are naturally antimicrobial, Hmm. and you don't have to worry about any of this. It's got a 60-day risk-free guarantee and a 12-month warranty, so you have nothing to lose in trying it out. So what if I already had a Tushy, like like an old one? You could upgrade to the 3.0 and find out how it will change your life. So... Would I go to hellotushy.com slash omnibus uh, to find this tushy? Yes. It's a special offer for our listeners. You'll get 10% off plus free shipping if you go to hellotushy.com slash omnibus. That's hellotushy.com slash omnibus. And then, of course, the, what would it be? Bamboo curtain closes around uh, Burma, and these are forgotten as... So much of that war material and so many of the stories of World War II just sort of forgotten or or gradually rediscovered throughout the 20th century. If you just think about the history of war cinema, they never ran out of those plots where it's like, oh, we're making a movie now about the lieutenant colonel that, you know, that liberated the mountains of Serbia. It's like there were so many of those stories, so many caches of sunken ships. Right. Our, our need for buried treasure stories had not actually, I mean, and buried treasure never existed. Pirates never buried treasure and, and left them. I mean, they might've buried treasure, but they never like left a map. Like all that stuff was invented by 19th century boys, adventure authors. But we still love that idea that you could, you could dig up something good. And uh, yeah, world war two left, left an option. So material. Much. I mean, if you, I don't know if you remember, but this was kind of a national geographic um, story from what feels like the what feels like the seventies. National Geographic of that era really cashed in on that shipwrecks and uh, you know just you know all that buried treasure media had gone away. So, and they they discovered uh they discovered a a whole set of sunken ships in the truck lagoon. Where's that? Um, it's in, you know, the Polynesia. Mm. And, you know, they're the result of a U.S. Navy raid where they sunk a bunch of ships, but it was in shallow enough water that in the mid-70s, an expedition discovered all these ships. And National Geographic, I remember it like it was yesterday, did this huge issue with all of these pictures of these, not just ships but ships that had tanks on them you know (laughs) like they were they were ships on the way to an invasion and they were all sunk intact so all these scuba divers down these moss and lobster covered boats that had tanks sitting on the decks and 
it seemed so wonderful and mysterious and exotic. But the specific form of World War II treasure hunting that is that's represented by crashed airplanes and lost airplanes um, was, a, again, throughout the later half of the 20th century, as, as those airplanes were recognized as increasingly scarce, you know, we threw them all away. Because we had too many. We had too many. And then by the, uh, by the ni- late 1970s, when we were making a bunch of movies like Tora, 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 where wait a minute, we need some of these P-40 Tomahawks, and there aren't that many left. Is that the market just for them? It's, it's the pl- it's, nobody's um, salvaging stuff from them. It's actually kind of historic uh, or recreation purposes. You want, the, you want the object intact? Yeah. I mean, and just the fact that they are so beautiful and they were so ic- iconic, it's, I mean, it's a little bit like the, like all those automobile fetishists that um, that now are paying up $2 million for a 1950s Ferrari because they just, there aren't any anymore. And they're incredibly beautiful. I mean, you can, you can buy a model T or a model a, which arguably is way more historically significant. Yes. I mean, you can get one of those. I mean, the people, the people that, how much, how much would it cost if I wanted a model T? The, the people that fetishize Model Ts are mostly dead now, is the problem. Yes, there's so many. There's a lot of them. There were a ton of them. Yeah. The people who fetishize them are gone. Yeah. And they were not beautiful. So a new generation has not risen up to want a Model T. I mean, they, they're they beautiful in their weird way. My, my dad's first car was a Model A. But right now, there's a Model T for sale. Uh, and it, the current, and it's a perfect like brass model T the current bid on it. And I'm looking at an auction site. Current bid is $20,000. Um, and there's three days left to go for the bidding. So, uh, you know, whoever it is, that's going to buy a model T you can get, you can probably get into it for less than 50 grand. What if I got my son that as his, as his car to go away to college? It would so be, it would be so perfect. What would, what could he say? I mean, he would just be. I mean, for $20,000, sure, I can get him a Jetta or something, yeah. but, or, or, what if I got him a Model, a Model T? Model T. My, it was my dad, Model A was my dad's car going away to college. Um, but if you wanted to buy what I think you would just consider like a pretty standard Porsche 911 from the 70s, uh, you know, you're often talking about over $100,000 for a car that's like, I mean, pretty commonplace, but really beautiful and fast and cool. Not even close to as fast as a Kia, uh, you know, or a Geo Metro. Plus the warranty is so much better. I mean, if you think about, they were like, this thing's got 150 horsepower. And, you know, you can get a car for uh, $15,000 now that's got 250 horsepower. <laughs> but, um, but airplanes in particular, crashed airplanes, because airplanes... As you know, they crash in weird places. They often crash on mountaintops. So they hold together? I mean, I assumed you would just be picking out uh, parts. Airplanes crash a lot of ways. And and if they go nose in to the side of a mountain, yeah, you're just, it's tinfoil. That's not going to be in a museum. But airplanes, you know, uh, pilots can often belly land them on a little field and... um, 
or I mean, airplanes sometimes do survive intact. And there was a very famous uh, set of airplanes that were frozen in ice where they, you know, they landed in Greenland. Yeah. Captain America. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. The plot of Captain America. It all America. comes back to Captain America. Uh, there was recently a, a, um, a Spitfire found on the side of a mountain in Norway that had been shot down, but landed kind of in yeah. a gentle way. The pilot actually bailed out and became one of the, uh, one of the POWs that was in the great escape <laughs> and was, you know, like machine gunned to death by the Nazis at, at the end of the war. And his airplane, which was like this specially modified Spitfire sat on the top of this Norwegian mountain for until, you know, until just recent times where they found it, discovered it was mostly intact. And this is not a case where, yeah, some locals knew it was there, but word didn't get out of that remote region. I or, think so. Hmm. I think the, you know, the local Norwegians were like, oh yeah, there was a Because that's what I assume about these hidden in the jungle stories. Yeah. All the people in the village nearby are like, yeah, yeah, that's where the, that's where that airplane is. Yeah. They go out and they, uh, a lot of those, they go s- scavenge for, you know, like they need a cooking pot. And so they make one out of the aluminum in this case, up on the mountain, it was not accessible enough to, for anybody to care about it. But apparently, it is intact enough that it's being re- reconstructed with the intention of getting it to be able to fly. The Norwegian one. Yeah, wow. which is, you know, which would require millions of dollars. And, and a, lot of the, uh, a lot of the memory, the institutional memory of these guys who are 97 years old. You see this down here at the Boeing Museum where these little guys come in. Ah, I flew in the B-24 yeah. and that's not the right rivet. And the, the people that are restoring them are guys in their 70s who learned at the the foot of these the, this generation prior and they're the last ones that know how to use the riveter. So there is a sense of... Um, I hope some of these people are like... Uh starting a blog or something yeah. just so we know there are people and I think Paul Allen's one of them that are c- trying to collect the the um the memory of this stuff before it's gone you talk about Paul in the first person because you know he's still like a hologram yeah. uh, creature yeah Paul managing his empire Paul is a, a brain in a jar almost certainly well I hope he reopens Cinerama <laughs> um, that is unlikely that was a money loser uh so the appeal of this uh this story Definitely turned uh, David Cundall into a treasure hunter. Did he go to the papers or did he try to get some money together and head to Burma? So he tried to get some money together and head to Burma. And this was, um, this was like a lot, this was like finding a ship from the Spanish Armada uh, that had a ton of gold in it, except the prospect of finding Spitfires preserved in the ground, covered with protective, a thin, coating of protective oil never flown in their crates and pulling them out one at a time and having 140 brand new Spitfires. It would be the best unboxing video <laughs> would be so, in the history of the internet. So cool. And so everybody that heard the story was like, say what? And there was the kind of circumstantial evidence uh, that would suggest that it was possible. Certainly it was, understood that there were an awful lot of this type of thing on, on loading docks. And there were people, old dudes 
who kind of came out of the woodwork. Eight different servicemen who had served with various parts of the British uh, military confirmed that they had seen, as they drove by in a Jeep, they had seen these crated spitfires being put into holes. How is there no paper trail? That's what I want to know. Well, you ask it's, an interesting question. It's, it's the it's the War Department of a nation of shopkeepers. Certainly, there's some bunker under St. James Park full of filing cabinets where they say what happened to every Spitfire that rolled off the line. This is a you you have hit on the key question um, because the fact that like Andrew Johnson's grandfather told him. Uh, that as a member of the 96th squadron of the RAF, that he had seen these airplanes being buried at the end of the airfield or that the 86 year old Stanley Coombe said that he had, you know, he'd been in a cantina in Rangoon and, uh, these are the kind of secondhand accounts that came out in the media about yeah, this. Is that yeah. It? Yeah. A man with a, with a, uh, handlebar mustache told him that the, that the ground was full of spitfires. It's, it's just this phenomenon of how life is so monotonous when you're elderly <laughs> that you will absolutely confess to killing Kennedy <laughs> or being DB Cooper or saying your dad, yeah. uh, uh, shot Huey long, you know, like, Old people are always confessing to crazy stuff. And maybe sometimes it's their it's their bored kids who just want to get on the local news saying, Oh yeah, granddad died, and as we all know, he shot Huey Long. Right. Uh but uh these things tend not to be true. They can't all be D.B. Cooper. It's weird because sometimes there's some old guy dies and it's like, oh, he was the first guy to walk into Bertus Garden and he has Hitler's silverware. Uh but there's also like the Hitler diaries. Remember that yeah. famous story that came out in the eighties and in uh, Der Sturm magazine, and it and people went crazy, and then it turned out to be a forgery. Um, so, yeah, uh, there's a lot. There's a lot to suggest that this was possible, and a lot to suggest it wasn't. And I think, I think uh, those records that you speak of, you know, they haven't been digitized necessarily. They're sure. in file cabinets somewhere, and uh, and Memex. David Cundell didn't have the the authority to go find it. But the best option seemed to be an, an old airbase at uh, Mingaladon in in Burma, which, and I think at the point that he started investigating this, uh, it was still Burma before it became Myanmar. There were reputedly 36 Spitfires buried at the end of the runway in Mingaladon, which is an active uh Airfield now. I mean, it is the it's the Yangon International Airport. Oh, that's the biggest airport in Burma. Yeah, and there it is, like at the end of the runway. And in somebody's story, that somebody's specific about, yeah, that's where the that's where the burial. That's is. where thirty six of them are buried. Now there were two other places, uh, Miktala and Mietkina uh, Kina. It sounds like the Russian part of, uh, yeah, of it's Burma. Hard for me to pronounce uh, Burmese, and I'm sorry to our Burmese futurelings. Uh, both of those other airfields also had maybe even more Spitfires buried at the end. So 
I would start at the one with the most Spitfires. David Kundal, or or the ones that are easiest to get to, which is like right at sure, the end. Sure, you get of off your plane in, in Yangon, and uh, you don't even pick up your luggage. You just head straight to the end of the runway right. with a shovel <laughs> that, you, that was your carry-on. David Kundal gets a lot of people excited about this idea. And then all of a sudden, Myanmar opens, right? The dictatorship is, uh, the military dictatorship is gone. I There's see. a new. This is all happening at a time when it would be like a forbidden land. Yes. And an exciting new place that now we can visit. And he comes with this story and he gets people into it. Uh, the, uh, the Belarusian uh, video game company wargaming.net uh, <laughs> thinks that this is so cool that they throw a million pounds at the Whoa. prop uh, at the at the they've got that's got to be a top five Belarusian video gaming right? concern wargaming.net conglomerate holy cow uh, and it he gets all kinds of archaeologists people getting really excited about it the my pillow guy the my pillow guy he flies there he. Um, he gets permission from the government to start excavating. That's, he gets that's some that's some money changing hands, I he assume. Has, he gets some drills. He gets some backhoes. He starts digging. Uh, they find a crate, oh. and it's full of muddy water, which is too bad for the Spitfires if they're there. But they were coated in oil, so maybe they're fine. Uh, they're underground, so anaerobic environment, maybe. Sure. Uh, they send a camera down. The camera can't see through the mud, uh, but they finally, you know, pull out enough to uh, realize that this is a crate full of like old tin fencing <laughs> that uh, was not a Spitfire. Oh man! Very, very t- uh, titillating though. Uh, and that's then, the moment that always happens in the treasure hunting, the Clive Cussler or the Tintin book or whatever, before they find the real stuff. So, right. so I'm sure they're undeterred. And, and one, uh, one of the quotes from it was just because we haven't found the Spitfires doesn't mean they're not there. And that's very hard to argue with. That's, that's the basis of my religious conviction. <laughs> but, uh, they started to dig up cables and stuff that went along with the active airport <laughs> and, the, and the, uh, the government said, Hold it. Like, you've got to cool your jets here, this literally. Is a, this is an active runway, You're sir. cooling our jets. And so they booted him out. And at the end of the season, um, because, you know, the monsoon season is pretty gnarly there. Uh, at the end of the season, they had it, it was inconclusive. But at this point, the prime minister of England, um, David Cameron at the time, like is part of the negotiations with the government of Myanmar to extend the digging because a um, a Burmese geologist by the name of Uso Tien uh, has a new kind of ground penetrating radar that surveys some of these burial sites and finds intriguing returns. Wait, this is a Burmese guy that invented a new kind of ground? He didn't invent it, but there was... Oh, he's got know, access to it. It was, in, it, was, uh, it was a company called Hitu Hitu that had this ground-penetrating ra- radar, and they used it, and there were... It's kind of like the search for the Titanic. It produced these images that were compelling. Ooh, so Tian, I bet you think the song is about you. Um, 
It was, by the way. That song was about him. It was about you. Uso, Uso Uso Ten. So they get another go at it. And the thing about- The the, same site? Same site. The the Myanmar government had given them a two-year permit- and toward the and this we're talking now uh, 2014. So there's been a there's been a, a quasi democracy for a, for three years now, but they only had a two two year permit, and the government said you can't use backhoes at the end of our active international airport anymore. So you have to just use shovels, like you have to use manual equipment. They're, but we'll let you dig it again. They're just getting some local uh, local labor, like some local union said, nope, no backhoes. Right. Uh, that's right. <laughs> No, no backhoes, and there's a blackout period every afternoon at 5. I know a guy. He'll get you 30 guys here tomorrow at 8. So they go back at it. They've got the ground-penetrating radar, and at this point now, it makes it into the global news uh, gyre, and people all around the world are now really rooting for these guys to find these spitfires. And the whole... You know, the whole enterprise really kicks into gear. They start digging, and monsoon season arrives. And I don't, I don't know if you've ever been in a monsoon. I have in Japan and Korea. But it's very difficult to dig for spitfires with a shovel in the middle of monsoon season. We used to leave South Korea in the summer, not just because we wanted to fly home and watch the Goonies in an air-conditioned theater, but because it would just rain just gallons out and of the And hard air. rain. Right? Uh, it would rain so hard every day. So even Wargaming.net's big cash could not save this, uh, this particular, you know, this dig. And then suddenly it dawned on everybody that at the end of the war, even with Lewis Mountbatten's considerable uh, hauteur, at this particular, you know, like, air base carved out of the jungle, there was absolutely no capacity to dig 30 foot deep holes to put 40 foot long, complete spitfires underground. Um, just the, the scale of the human labor is not, is not plausible. It's just in, in, inconceivable. Think huh. about the hit. Think about the pit. 30 foot deep? I mean, these guys can't dig into this ground. Well, people and, built the pyramids or, or aliens. Well, they did, but they, you know, they had a reason to, which was clearly to build a giant pyramid. Giant magnet to focus the sun's, um, the, the earth's whatever field. These RAF guys, they wanted to go home. You know, they, there was no, this would have been the biggest project in Burma at the time. This would be the Hoover Dam of Burma. It would have been, I mean, 40-foot long Spitfire containers. There are, there were reputedly 36 of them, and they were buried 30 feet underground, according to the plan. This is not something you could take a truck of guys into the jungle with and, uh, and get done in a weekend. No, and crucially, it's a thing there would have been a photograph of. <laughs> and like you're saying, there would have been a receipt uh, somewhere. Somebody just should have looked at Life magazine. And what's strange is that throughout this process of many, many years where David Kundal became kind of an international celebrity, no, and David Cameron is uh, negotiating with the president of Myanmar. For, for non-existent airplanes? You would think someone would have gone and looked in the file. Yeah. And at the point that they sort of reached the area where their ground-penetrating radar indicated there were intriguing uh, 
returns and found uh, some more corrugated tin fencing or whatever, someone thought to look at the record. Open a file cabinet. And what they discovered was that in 1945, 37 aircraft did arrive in the Rangoon docks, none of which were Spitfires, and all of which were, uh, once they'd been debarked onto the Rangoon piers, the war ended, and they re-embarked them on ships and took them to Australia or never to, left the port. I mean, they were, they were just, yeah, they never left the docks and there were plenty of records to show that they'd been, uh, they had traveled on. And so the whole enterprise in the space of a few weeks went from we're moments away from discovering the lost spitfires of Burma to, uh, Oh, Mm, nothing to see here. In, and, and it's not just nothing to see here. It's there are no lost spitfires of Burma. There are no lost spitfires of Burma. Now, there still are people Truthers. Who, who, who believe that because you haven't found the lost spitfires of Burma does not mean they're not there. And it is impossible to argue with them. Well, like any conspiracy theory. But, um, but yeah, in the, the long and the short of it is, as you say, uh, the United Kingdom, a nation of shopkeepers, especially since we we continue to uncover like the the files, the contemporaneous files from all the other nations of Europe, which are like, well, yeah, Hitler's skull is in a shoebox in uh, a KGB of a KGB basement. Um, the hundred and forty lost Spitfires of Burma ended up being a what a goose chase. I'm a little disappointed. When you, John, when you call a, uh, an entry in a reference work, the lost Spitfires of Burma, at a minimum, I'm going to require you to deliver me two Spitfires mm. from Burma mm. that were lost. Yes. And in this case, zero Spitfires. Nothing. Some corrugated tin, some fence. Yeah. And like a screwed up set of uh, communications cables at the, at the, Yangon International. What are we to learn from this? I know what we're supposed to learn from this. This is like when your uh, your reports due the next day in school, and your teachers, and you know, you go to your teacher for help, and she says, "Well, where's your outline? Where, show me your notes from the library." This is this David whatever. He's the guy that never made an outline, mm. never went to the library, doesn't have index cards, uh, and as a result, you know, he just dived into his paper the night before. He was a fifty year old in a pub. He heard two old men talking about something. And uh, 10 years later, the prime minister of England was negotiating with the president of Myanmar for an enormous dig for which there was like zero documentation, except for some old men. Two pieces of advice, which are probably not mutually exclusive. One, always do your research first. Number two, never believe old people. And that concludes... The Lost Spitfires of Burma, so-called. Entry 736.AC0219, certificate number 34112, in the Omnibus. Now, Futurelings, uh, this enterprise is tragically easy to find on social media. We are at Omnibus Project. Um, I'm on Twitter and uh, other platforms far and wide. I'm at Ken Jennings. Uh, John, you can find on Patreon. Uh, you could email us 
at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. We received uh, postal mail at our post office box, which was P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Again, that's the Omnibus Project at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington. Catherine has sent us uh, dodecahedron calendars. Oh, how fun. Out of folded paper. And these, oh, oh, wait, and they're full of, what are they full of? They're little, it's a calendar and a castanet. It's a, it's a calstanet. It's a calendar For some reason, everyone always asks what's inside. See? Mm-hmm. See, this is the thing about buried treasure. Yes. You see a dodecahedral calendar that rattles. You, and you think it's full of spitfires. Uh, just something to add some weight. Oh, That's, well, I, nothing is inside. Thank you, Catherine. Something to make it roll more effectively. Oh, if I was, see. If it was just paper. She's, she's saying prescriptively it doesn't have to be any particular kind of weight. It could be dried beans or popcorn, presumably um, unpopped popcorn. This year it is dried split peas because she had a bag of those. It's huh. a Look, it's a 2021 calendar, and I guess you put the... Um, I guess you put the current month either face up or facing you. Oh, look at that. Oh, so it's not meant to be rolled... You could, I mean, you could you could roll up a character and be like, what month was my character born? Oh, July 2021. My, my character was born in October of 2021. Let's see when my birthday is in 2021. So I was born on a Friday, Friday the 13th. Friday's child. Uh, uh, yeah, Friday's child. Full of woe, I think. Is that, is right? that right? Oh, I thought you were talking about uh, um, Beyonce's original band, Friday's Child. Uh, no, my birthday falls on a Monday this year. That's too bad. Uh, interesting. Yeah, th- these are cool. My birthday is on a Sunday. I actually like these. This is what the um, this is what those guys turn all the Enterprise crewmen into when they um take over the ship. Who the Borgs? I don't know. Some guys. Um, the, the yeah, Halloween is on a Sunday. That's always kind of a bummer. You want Halloween to be on a Friday, I think. What if the pod- this podcast has another hour of us just looking at this um, <laughs> at these oddly shaped? It still wouldn't counters. be the longest episode we've done. Thank you so much, uh, Catherine. We also got we got a Paulsbo Washington postcard from, but it's we now have two identical ones of these. Paulsbo Washington, Paulsbo Washington. Uh, uh, what they must do? Be, they say the same thing? They were sent five days apart. I wonder if they're from different. Are they in different handwriting? Is it a husband and wife team? The handwriting looks... No, the handwriting is the same. Are they addressed to us both? One each? Yes. They enjoyed the Botter-Meinhof show. Thank you. And they say we should put the mailing address on the webpage. Both. Oh, good. The Botter-Meinhof episode couplet was a masterfully executed bit of whimsy. We should put this on the poster. There we go. A masterfully executed bit of whimsy. Uh, someone in Paul's bow. That's better than the other take on it, which was Ken's show was better than John. <laughs> that's that's not only um, offensive, but it's a very common opinion. <laughs> Dave from Tucson sent us this postcard of uh, of where are we? Bavaria. That looks fairly Bavarian. There. It's in. It's it the like it's the Hirsch, the Hirsch Hotel and Brewery in. Otto Boyron, or is that the street address? In Algau. Is Algau a city? Yeah. Uh, no, I have no idea where this is. Uh, and look, this is this is the one I wanted to show you. Postcard, hand-drawn picture of a Mars rover. And it's oh. really good. I mean, those are, uh, those are like, all over Memmingen. Um, let's see. They're all over what? Oh, the, the breweries. Oh, the Mar- Mars that. rovers are not all over 
any part of Germany. Oh, that's really, that's really wonderful. Hang in there. Fans of all of us. Yes, this is wonderful. Mars Rover. Very nice. We also got a postcard with a picture of a Japanese um, cartoon character named Gon, who is a, a baby dinosaur who befriends different kinds of animals. I've never seen this before. I actually have, but on the back, it, it explains, it gone splains at length. Scott um, tells me about Gon, or maybe it's Gone. It has a, it has a Drano thing over the O. Mm-hmm. And he actually says, um, he cut in front of me once at a at a Scott McCloud book signing. Um, what to, is this person to, to, to tell a story, uh, to tell Scott McCloud a story about Gone? Oh, he did. I see. Yes, he uh, did. He I, cut, I he thought cut, he meant Gone cut in front of him. No, he, Scott, he, Scott, cut in front of me, Ken, at some book signing oh. just to tell Scott McCloud about But he doesn't appear apologetic about it. He seems delighted that Super he cut proud. in front of me just to talk about this um this dinosaur who befriends otters and whatnot. what were you doing at a Scott McCloud book signing? I know Scott a little bit. I think he came to one. Of, I think he came to one of my book events once, and I wanted to say hi. I see. I, I see. I, yeah. I actually, I honestly don't remember. I know how that goes. Uh, You've been to so many book signings. That's a humble brag. So many book it? signings that you're like, oh, I don't even remember. I don't think it's a very good brag. I mean, it's a certain kind of humble brag. A certain kind of bookish Except humble. If brag. you're an author and you see who goes to book signings, it. <laughs> It's people wanted to get out of the rain, basically. I've been to a few book readings re- recently uh, before the pandemic, and you are not wrong. Uh, the best way to support the show, however, is not to send us the decahedral calendars, although we're not against that. No, I, I'm... I, until this moment, I would not have suggested it as, as top five ways to support the show. I'm pro it. It's good, though. Um, if you do not have a dodecahedral calendar handy and you want to support the show in a different way, you could go to patreon.com slash omnibusproject and uh, determine which of the many fine benefits you would like to enjoy and support accordingly. Futurelings from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived. Uh, It seems slightly more hopeful that we'll at least make it to the end of the decade. Uh, It seems slightly more hopeful now. Vaccines are working. Yeah, than it did six months Uh, ago. The president um, doesn't watch TV all day. There's some... There's been some good changes. Yeah. But still, uh, I feel like the doomsday clock is tick, tick, ticking away. Uh, but we hope and pray that the catastrophe that I just described may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. If Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.